Good afternoon. Welcome to this forum organized by the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute. We at Cato have long studied the role of foreign aid in promoting U.S. foreign policy goals, many of them quite laudable. Over the course of more than six decades, an abundance of evidence has accumulated, however, showing that aid has a very poor record either at promoting uh, economic development or reform, or indeed of supporting U.S. security interests. In terms of growth, aid has caused typically more harm than good, the record shows, causing dependency and a buildup of unpayable debts in some of the largest uh, recipients. In terms of national security interests, aid has often helped entangle the United States in complex local disputes it, it cannot solve, often with quite uh, disastrous consequences. Leading thinkers in uh, recipient countries around the world are also increasingly documenting some of these harms in their own countries. I'm pleased that our speakers uh, today from the Jerusalem Institute of Market Studies are a prominent example. Uh, they're doing an admirable job educating the public and policymakers in Israel and beyond about how U.S. Uh, policy is actually helping to set back the agenda on, uh, in favor of free markets and peace in the broader uh, Middle East. Uh, this issue is of extreme importance. The U.S. relationship with Israel and the Middle East is a defining feature of U.S. foreign policy. So today's forum, uh, Does uh, the Middle East Need U.S. Aid, is actually asking one of the most consequential questions in U.S. Uh, foreign policy. Given the Arab uprising and the, the big changes that are going on in, in many uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries and uh, bigger changes still on the horizon, the, the discussion today is even more timely. Indeed, the United States is considering a debt relief uh, of Egypt, and it is pushing the IMF to lend billions more in an effort to promote uh, reforms and uh, the types of policies that many of us would agree with. Uh, however, it is worth asking, will this really help to promote reforms and prosperity? We've been down this road before. But I'll stop doing the talking and listen to the experts in the region. Uh, before I introduce our, our speakers, let me just mention that there are index cards on every chair or next to you, so that in the course of the, the discussion, if you have a question that you would like to ask, simply write it down and uh, we'll be collecting those questions. Uh, for the question and answer period. Our first speaker is Robert Sauer, uh, who is a co-founder and president of the, of the Jerusalem Institute for Market Studies, which I should say has uh, established itself as the leading uh, market-oriented independent uh, uh, think tank in Israel on public policy issues. He received his PhD in economics from New York University. He moved from the U.S. to Israel, where he was a professor of economics at Bar-Ilan University, Tel Aviv University, and later at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Currently, uh, he is professor and chair of economics at the University of Bristol in the U.K. Uh, Robert Sauer has published studies in leading economic journals, such as Econometrica, the Journal of Political Economy, the Review of Economic Studies, the Journal of Labor Economics, and the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. It is my pleasure uh, to welcome him to the podium. 
Okay, uh, thank you, Ian, very much for that introduction, and thank you all for, uh, and to the Cato Institute, and thank you all for uh, coming uh, this afternoon. Uh, so what I'd like to talk about is USAID to the Middle East, the economic and uh, strate strategic implications uh, for Israel. So what I want to do first is just lay out the basic facts, show you some of the numbers about uh, USAID to the Middle East, uh, and then I'll try to argue why USAID to the Middle East is not a pro-Israel policy. And then I'll offer some policy recommendations for ending uh, USA, not to Israel alone, but to the Middle East as a whole. Uh, now, just to show you the numbers and the facts, if, if you look at the bottom right cell, you see that uh, in fiscal year 2011, uh, the administration requested $7.1 uh, billion uh, for the Middle East. And uh, there's $3 billion in military aid that goes to Israel. At 3.025 billion, um, but f over 4 billion, the the rest goes to uh, Arab countries. Uh, Egypt being the largest recipient, uh, Egypt receiving uh, 1.558 billion, uh, 1.3 of which is military aid, and 250 million uh, being economic aid. Uh, and then there are small amounts going to Jordan, Palestinian, the Palestinians, Lebanon, and uh, some other countries in the region. Uh, now, why is it that we believe that uh, this situation is not in, in Israel's interest? First, it fuels a, a Middle East arms race and an economic loss for Israel. So estimates uh, that have come out show that for every $1 in military, e military aid that goes to Egypt, that Egypt receives, Israel must spend between $1.60 and $2.14 to maintain the qualitative military edge. That is the same ratio of uh, military strength. Now, since Israel receives $1.50 for each dollar that uh, Egypt receives, that is $1.50 in aid, uh, in military aid, that means that it's a net loss in economic terms to, to Israel. Israel needs to spend between 10 cents and 64 cents out of its own treasury uh, to maintain the military balance uh, as is. Uh, so a corollary to that is, in the absence of aid, there would be less arms in the Middle East, uh, if you like, and uh, more disposable resources or disposable income uh, for Israel. The second reason that it, uh, we believe that it's not a pro-Israel policy is that it hurts the Israeli defense industry, causing uh, an economic loss for Israel. So there's a requirement uh, in USAID to Israel that 73.7% uh, of that aid uh, must be spent on U.S. equipment. So that translates into less uh, military expenditures of the IDF in Israel itself, that is for the domestic uh, Israeli defense industries. So as an example, uh, for example, uh, the Galil rifle as opposed to the M16, uh, in, it's thought that uh, that domestically produced, Israeli produced rifle is more appropriate uh, and is less expensive for Israel, yet because of the requirement uh, to spend some of that money, the majority of that money, uh, in the United States, uh, that uh, is not purchased to the same extent it would be um, if there was no aid and Israel had to uh, uh, fund its own defense expenditures, and that causes quite a, a big loss to the Israeli defense industries. Now, when the IDF does not use Israeli defense equipment, what happens is that uh, they also lose contracts with other countries to export that, uh, that weaponry. 
So there's a, a, another loss to the, uh, to the defense industry. It's, it turns out that the use by the IDF of Israeli-made products is a stamp of approval and something that is desirable and is something that is marketable. Uh, so, the, uh, so the Israeli defense industries lose contracts uh, for that reason. Uh, there are some other issues, uh, for example, direct offsets. Often when a, when a uh, country purchases uh, weaponry from the United States, uh, there's a type of rebate. Uh, often a direct offset is uh, transferring a production line for that equipment uh, to the country itself. But Israel does not get that same uh, amount of direct offsets from the purchases of American equipment, uh, given that it's being funded uh, by aid. Uh, there are also some uh, questions about the aid limiting competition. Uh, that is, uh, uh, the U.S. is competing with Israel in several markets um, for exporting weapons, and uh, the, the aid um, puts some extra pressure on Israel to uh, not go, with, got, go through with uh, uh, several contracts. So in, in the bottom line here is that uh, there's a loss to the Israeli defense industries, and it's been estimated that this could reach, to reach nearly uh, $3 billion a year. Uh, third, as Ian mentioned, um, foreign aid in general, we know there's plenty of evidence, uh, blocks, tends to block uh, pro-market reforms. And this is uh, also true in Israel, we believe. Um, that if, the, if the Israel had to replace the $3.1 billion a year by itself, uh, which it, it totals uh, between 18 and 22 percent of its defense budget, then they would likely, Israel would likely have to uh, implement some efficiency measures to be able to uh, fund uh, uh, that amount of money by itself. Uh, now, it's interesting to note that Israel would not have to raise the full $3.1 billion. As I mentioned, there would be lower total defense expenditures due to the purchase of uh, cheaper equipment in Israel or from other countries, and there would also be uh, an overall demilitarization uh, without aid to the Middle East as a whole. Um, there would also be more tax revenues from increased employment and corporate profits in, uh, from the defense industries uh, from these uh, increased uh, uh, domestic uh, arms purchases, offsets, and also export contracts. Uh, and the last thing to note is the gas discoveries um, that were recently found in the Mediterranean uh, off the Israeli coast in Israeli territorial waters uh, is projected to bring in $140 billion in uh, government revenues over the next 30 years, which amounts to four, approximately $4.67 billion uh, a year in government revenues. So it f you can see that that clearly could offset um, the, three point, the loss of $3.1 uh, billion. So what are, our, what are our policy recommendations? What, what do we think uh, should be done? Well, we believe that, of course, uh, aid, U.S. aid, should be cut to the Middle East uh, entirely, not just Israel. I should emphasize that. And um, what Israel could do, what the U.S. and Israel could do, is to negotiate a gradual reduction in, in that military aid in return for increased uh, co-funded activity. So now there's plenty of joint research and development, especially on missile defense, that's going on uh, at the moment between uh, the U.S. and Israel, and that should, uh, that should continue. This is 50% funded by uh, Israel and 50% funded by the U.S. So that's a good model to uh, continue with. So there could be a gradual reduction over time in the, in the aid component 
in return, one can say, for an increase in contracts with the U.S. Uh, for co-funded uh, R&D. Um, now, there's a model for this negotiated reduction. Uh, this uh, actually took place with the reduction in economic aid to Israel and an increase in, uh, in military aid uh, that started in, 19, in 1998. There was a $120 million uh, reduction per year uh, starting in 1998 in military aid, with, uh, in economic aid, sorry, and an increase of $60 million uh, per year in military aid. So there was a net decrease of $60 million per year until it reached zero in 2008. So what we could do is aim to reduce that, the military aid component now through uh, fiscal year 2019 when the agreement, uh, the new agreement that was signed in 2008 with the Bush administration uh, expires. Um, so there could be a reduction, gradual reduction, as I mentioned, in the, mil in the military aid and an increase in the, in the co-funded uh, activity until that time. Um, and the second aspect of that is, of course, that the economic and military aid to all Arab countries should be reduced at an equivalent pace. So as the, uh, as the amount is reduced over time to Israel, uh, the amount should be reduced at, at the same three-to-two ratio to Arab countries as a whole as well. So there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of well understood that there's a three-to-two ratio between Israel and uh, uh, and the Arab countries in, in aid. Uh, so this is similar to when the um, 60, net $60 million loss to Israel since 1998 was accompanied by a $40 million reduction in aid uh, to Egypt, maintaining that three to two ratio. So there is a, there is a model for, um, for what we're recommending. Now, we also believe that this should be a uh, voluntary negotiated solution. And this should be much preferred over forced cuts. Forced cuts did happen in the past. In, uh, in fiscal year 1986, following the Graham-Rudman-Hollings uh, Act, or the Balanced uh, Budget and Emergency Deficit Control Act of 1985, there was a 4.3% reduction in foreign aid accounts across the board. Uh, so it has happened. There is a precedent for this. And now, according to the Budget Control Act of 2011, we might have uh, an 8.5% uh, decrease or cut to all uh, foreign aid accounts in fiscal year 2013. However, there is an, uh, a possible exemption for Israel. Aid to Israel can be legally exempted uh, in this act, and we believe that should happen. But in return for a negotiated solution uh, through fiscal year 2019, this would, as, as I suggested, now, this would send a signal to the world that the cut to Israel uh, is, uh, through a negotiated solution, means that this uh, U.S.-Israel bond uh, remains unbreakable. Uh, finally, I, I'd like to just mention that all of this is relevant only to Israel's foreign military financing, that is the FMF component of U.S. aid. We wouldn't suggest uh, touching the, the other forms of aid uh, that exist. There's, there are no great problems with that. Um, for example, the U.S. loan guarantees uh, to Israel, which are, is also a type of co-funded activity, uh, and also the emergency U.S. Uh, weapons stockpile that uh, is also worth about a billion dollars a year um, uh, in Israel. And that uh, is a type of aid that we don't suggest touching. It's really just a component, which is the, um, uh, the uh, conditional aid of the 70, where 73.7% has to be uh, spent on American equipment. So I think I'll stop there.
Thank you. Our next speaker is Corinne Sauer, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Jerusalem Institute for Market Studies. Uh, she earned her master's in economics at the University of Aix-Marseille in, in 1987 and was an Austrian economics fellow in the economics PhD program in New York University uh, in the 1980s and up until 1990. Uh, she is an expert in data analysis and education uh, economics and is the director at the Center for Data Analysis at uh, the Institute. Please help me welcome Corinne Sauer. Um, well, thank you very much to the Cato Institute for hosting us and uh, to all of you for uh, coming during uh, your lunch time. Uh, what I'm going to show you is a result of a poll, an opinion poll survey uh, that we did in Israel actually about uh, two weeks ago uh, to prepare for this talk and we wanted to know what basically Israelis uh, and how they felt about military aid to uh, Israel from the United States. Uh, so um, as an overview, uh, the survey was made on uh, 513 respondents. It was a telephone survey. Uh, as you can see, it was made during uh, the last week of August, and the margin of error is uh, about plus or minus 4.5%. Uh, the survey, the language was uh, made in Hebrew. We wrote the question in English, but uh, they were interviewed in Hebrew. And it's a representative sample of the Israeli Jewish population. Uh, so which means basically it represents about 80% of the uh, Israeli population. We didn't interview the Arab population uh, for two reasons. One, because it's much more difficult to get to them and to get a representative sample for telephone survey, which would have mean that it would have been uh, in the house and a face-to-face -face interview, and we didn't have time to do it. So you have to keep in mind that, that this is on, based on the Israeli Jewish population. Um, sorry. <laughs> the key findings and uh, the first question uh, that was asked, it shows a clear majority of Israeli, actually 59% versus 90% think it would be worse if uh, Israel, uh, if uh, US military assistance uh, was stopped. Uh, now, when we will look a little bit further into these numbers, we will discover that it's not so black and white, and that uh, depending on the cut in socioeconomic background of a respondent, those numbers changed dramatically. In fact, it became clear that more religious a person is, or more attached to Judaism, traditionalist, and uh, the more likely it will be uh, prone to support a stop to USAID. Uh, there is also 49 of the Israelis that uh, right now think that weapons purchased by Egypt with US dollar and US aid are more likely to turn against Israel. And 32% feel it is much more likely. Uh, so here there is a clear majority of Israelis that uh, do worry about US dollars going to the new regime in Egypt, which uh, you know, has been changed and we don't know exactly uh, which way it will go. And the Israelis are uh, very worried that uh, we may end up uh, having paying a heavy price for that. Uh, women and younger people, and again religious people, are more likely uh, to think that uh, weapons purchased by Egypt will be used against Israel. Uh, now I want to go for uh, the questions that was asked. Uh, okay, <laughs> really bad, bad, okay. 
Here we go. Uh, every year, that was a question, and obviously it's translated in English. Every year, the United States give 3.1 billion to Israel for military assistance and 4.1 billion uh, in military and economic assistance to Arab countries. And the question was, do you think it will be better or worse for Israel if all USA to Israel and the Arab countries was stopped? So as I say before, 59% of the Israeli responded that it will be worse, 19% responded 19 better, and again you have a big, uh, you know, 22% of people that didn't know or refused to give an opinion. Uh, now this is quite a uh, you know, big percent because in general when we do poll survey in Israel, Israelis tend to have opinions about everything. Uh, so usually we get around uh, three or four percent of undecided or don't know. So 22 percent was actually quite a surprise. And uh, I think one of the reasons is that it's a very new idea that hasn't been brought up in the public opinion in Israel. And the, basically the people I didn't have time to form an opinion on that. Okay, I'm going to try to do it. Uh, yeah, we go. <laughs> okay, this is uh, basically the breakdown. Uh, as you can see, the 19% is about divide between much better and somehow better. And uh, now, in the negative answer, 40% actually thinks that it will be uh, much worse. So right now, we still uh, don't have a clear majority. <laughs> Now, uh, on this table, uh, we can see uh, the difference. So the first uh, top table uh, shows the difference by uh, level of uh, religiosity. Uh, secular will mean that it's people that uh, are not religious. Traditional uh, will be a little bit more religious. Religious will be uh, really religious and national religious. And finally, ultra-orthodox. So if you want, as you go up the scale of religious, you also go up the better. In other words, uh, people which are more and more religious, uh, also they tend to support a cut to USAID to the Middle East. Uh, what's uh, written here is a GLM02, is the Jerusalem region, which also tends to be uh, more religious. And uh, second, the last column, which uh, says uh, Sharon 09, which is the Tel Aviv region. And uh, as you can see, uh, in Jerusalem, it's more than uh, almost triple the number of uh, Tel Aviv that do support a, a cut to USAID. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, very uh, strong results. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it shows also the division among uh, the Israeli society when uh, it comes uh, to political issues and uh, definitely shows there. Now, the bottom uh, table uh, is divided by uh, political party. Uh, now, you probably all know the Likud, since it's the party of our prime minister, and there, actually, 57% of the people that affiliate themselves with Likud are in favor of stopping USAID uh, to Israel and the Middle East. Uh, the Shas, which is a religious party affiliated with a branch of Sepharadim, Jews is uh, also uh, very uh, much in favor of it, for less than the Likud. Uh, now when you look at uh, the leftist party, uh, Meretz, uh, then uh, you get only 19% of the people that will support a cut to uh, US military aid. And uh, even lower for Lapid, I am not sure if this is like a very serious result, he's some kind of journalist that is trying to cut into politics. But uh, he hasn't been elected to the Knesset yet. Uh, 
but it is clear that the right-wing uh, parties, uh, affiliated Israelis, tend to support a cut to uh, USAID. And that was uh, basically somehow of a surprise and probably uh, a very interesting result. Um, now, the second question uh, that were asked was, uh, every year Egypt receives 1.3 billion in military aid from the United States, and uh, with the emergence of a new government and the leadership in Egypt, uh, do you think that weapons purchased by U.S. military are more likely or less likely to be used against Israel? And there, this is clearly a majority, 49% uh, say they are more likely. I mean, it's a clear majority of the people that answer. Uh, 28 say that it's less likely. And again, we do have uh, quite a big number of people that didn't know or refused, stays at uh, 23%. Uh, so this is clearly a, a concern among the Israeli uh, population. Uh, now, again, we uh, did cut uh, those uh, results uh, by some uh, social background characteristic. And it's clearly that uh, the women uh, are much more worried. Maybe it's something genetic uh, among women to be worried. But uh, 59 of the women do worry about it, against 38% for the men. And interestingly enough, the younger population, uh, the, 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 the age group 1824, uh, worry the most, with 64%. Uh, now, you also have to realize that that's uh, the age group who is also serving in the IDF at uh, that moment, and are probably also very in tune uh, with what is happening on the socio, on the geostrategic uh, issues in Israel. And uh, as people uh, grow older, uh, I guess their uh, level of worry uh, goes down also. Uh, now, on the bottom table, we again have uh, a cut for the level of religiosity. And again, here you can see that us people get to be more religious. They are also more worried about the issue of the aid which is given to Egypt. Um, this is also uh, by a political party. There is also, again, an overlap between the level of religiosity and uh, the affiliation of the party. Agudat Israel, for example, being an ultra-Orthodox party, so everybody in that party is actually uh, ultra-Orthodox. The National Union, which is uh, basically national religious, uh, and those are, uh, as you can see, the Shas, which is a religious party for Sepharadim, and the Likud, who also has uh, a lot of uh, religious voters. Now, if you go to the other extreme, which is uh, Kadima and Meretz and Labour, then in that case, they seem uh, to be much less worried uh, about uh, Egypt turning uh, the USA against Israel. Now, uh, finally, we ask a question uh, that uh, was, we ask uh, if there are some that say that Israeli political freedom and ability to implement economic reform is hindered as a result of the 3.1 billion a year in military aid it receives. Uh, the idea is that, you know, we strongly believe that there is no free lunch, and when somebody gives you a big gift of uh, 3.1 billion, you have some uh, link attached and you have to uh, listen to them. So that was uh, basically the, the question we asked. And uh, here we got actually 32% to agree, 41% disagree. But if you did add the undecided and the agree, actually the, the one that disagree to that are actually a minority. 
so this is also uh, an interesting result. And uh, I think that Israelis as a whole do feel that you know, getting money, uh, military aid, uh, also reduces our economic and political freedom. Uh, again, uh, there is the same cut here and uh, among the national religious and the religious which are close to the national religious, here it's clearly a clear majority of the people that do believe that getting U.S. aid is uh, ampering uh, Israeli freedom. Uh, well, I just, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so I think that uh, you know what uh, can be uh, noted in those results is that uh, basically I thought the Israelis are not uh, abandoned totally their mind on the subject. It is clear that the religious and the national religious and uh, the right-wing party are in favor of cutting USA to all the Middle East. Uh, it is clear that it's not just to cut to Israel, it will be to cut to the whole region, and uh, this is something that, uh, as Robert said, we are uh, recommending. Thank you. Thank you, Corinne. Uh, those are really fascinating, maybe unexpected results. So we've heard about uh, what some Israelis think about the U.S. relationship. I've asked our next speaker to talk a little bit about the U.S. point of view. Before I introduce him, I just want to remind you that there are index cards for some of you who came in a little bit late. Uh, if you want to ask a question, uh, write your question on that index card, and we can collect them during the question and answer period. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and he specializes in foreign policy and civil liberties issues. He was a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, is uh, uh, an ubiquitous, ubiquitous presence in the media, writes uh, columns frequently in the most prominent outlets uh, in the United States and internationally, and will speak uh, for some 10 minutes or so on this topic. Thanks, Ian. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to share the podium with the Sowers. I <clears throat> participated in a conference in Jerusalem back in May that uh, the Institute had. It's a wonderful outfit uh, doing great work in Israel, looking not only at issues like these that affect America, but most obviously issues that affect Israel in terms of economic reform. And a lot of wonderful work trying to promote a freer society there, so I commend them on, on their good work. I'm certainly pleased to see them come to the United States and raise this issue. I mean, the United States has dealt with the issue of foreign aid for 50, 60 years. Foreign aid, you know, kind of became a major American policy initiative after World War II. We had the uh, Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, and as well as we've had regional offshoots created and a bilateral aid program to the Agency for International Development for years. And uh, trillions of dollars have been transferred internationally from various institutions, both bilaterally and trilaterally, or multilaterally. And the result, I think the experience suggests, the result has not been good. That unfortunately, it's very hard to promote development through aid transfers. That very often, it's not foreign aid, but it's really foreign hindrance. That what one is doing with making these kind of financial transfers tends to be you know, empowering governments and creating dependency and reducing reform. I mean, really, the, uh, the reverse of what one would expect with foreign aid. That uh, what we've seen in a lot of countries that have received aid is we've reinforced state control of the economy, the one has tended to benefit elites as opposed to the average people, and the one has slowed down a developmental process, that it's really taken the end of foreign aid to some of these regimes to convince them to make transformational reforms. And I think we see, I mean, Israel is very different in this level of development, but I think we see some of the same pathologies here that are problematic. 
Now, Israel is kind of a schizophrenic economy in certain ways. It has a very well-developed high-tech sector that I think even America can envy in terms of its ability <laughs> to reach world markets. I think much of that comes from the quality of officers and NCOs in the Israeli military who have to make decisions and come out very well prepared for these kinds of uh, you know, entrepreneurial occupations. You know, nevertheless, it also has you know, sectors of the economy that are traditional, that are subsidized, that are sheltered. So what Israel sees within its own economy are two different worlds, one of which is very forward-looking and very uh, you know, effective economically around the world, the other of which I think shows all the problems that we typically see with state control, state subsidies. <clears throat> And the problem is that money is fungible. And I would actually personally t you know, take a look at the economic aid, the humanitarian aid, I mean, the whole package of aid that Israel receives, not just the f military assistance, because I think it raises many of the same issues. I mean, the challenge is that money is fungible. So if you hand, it doesn't matter what the purpose nominally is, if you hand somebody money, of course, they can spend other money however they want. You fund projects over here, it frees up resources over there. And what that does is means that the Israeli government has more money effectively to spend on special interests if it wants to. It has more money to spend on you know, sectors of the economy that are inefficient if it wants to. It also reduces the uh, penalty for bad policies. And this, I think, has been one of the biggest problems of foreign aid around the world and a lot of third world governments is they have extraordinarily malfunctioning governments and economies, but money shows up from abroad and you can use it to pay off elites, you pay off political supporters, and you reduce that grassroots reform demanding change. That it makes it easier then to have an inefficient economy. That it reduces, in effect, I think in, in Jerusalem, the need to make trade-offs. And you know, the, forcing countries and forcing individuals and policymakers to make trade-offs is a very powerful disciplining mechanism. If you can spend whatever you want on whatever you want, you know, then why make choices? Why try to make change? And I think that one can raise some of the same questions, even on some of the humanitarian assistance in terms of housing, refugees. You know, Israel is a wealthy country, and especially with resources that are likely to be coming in with these new gas fines. You know, Israel needs to be making trade-offs within its own society in terms of what does it want to spend money on? Where does it want to direct resources? The more the money comes from outside, the less it has to make those trade-offs. <clears throat> now, security is an obvious concern to Israel, given its <clears throat> excuse me, geographic position in history. It strikes me the good news is that Israel today, compared to the Israel of 60 years, 70 years ago, is it's wealthy, it's high-tech, it's capable, it's a regional superpower. And it's, it has the resources itself, again, to make the security decisions that it needs to make. It's not clear that it needs this transfer of wealth from the United States to try to promote its security. What it needs to do is make more efficient spending decisions within its own society where it wants to divert the resources that it has and make those choices and spend them well. And I think the irony, I think the great uh, you know, work that's coming out of the Institute and the Sowers is pointing out how the, kind of the nature of U.S. foreign aid in certain ways hampers Israel's ability on its own, to support its own security. That you know, aid and government spending always has conditions. And what we see is there are even conditions applied to Israel. You know, the Israel is a very strong political support in the U.S., but that doesn't change the fact that aid to Israel comes with conditions. <clears throat> and those conditions, you know, very oddly, are hurting Israel's security. <clears throat> Spending on American weapons, which is good for American arms manufacturers, but is not necessarily good for Israel. <clears throat> they may be spending more on weapons that are not as effective. It also hurts the development of domestic industries, as we've heard, in terms of security, which for Israel is very important. For a country like that, having its own indigenous industries is a very important aspect of its security. And finally, you're basically subsidizing an arms race in uh, the Middle East, that by supporting both sides of a potential conflict, what the U.S. is doing is, in a sense, creating a need on both sides to spend more and a greater need for U.S. aid. 
And of course, I hope that, is, you know, that Egypt turns out okay, and I hope that Jordan works everything out and becomes democratic and loves us. You know, I hope all these, you know, the Arab Spring kind of you know, blossoms the way we all would like it to do. Certainly, if I was sitting in Israel, I would be nervous. And the question of money is going to these countries. I mean, the U.S. is, you know, the administration has just announced uh, more foreign aid, a you know, new package for Egypt. Well, we have no idea how this country is going to develop. I hope President Morsi turns out to be a very kind of, you know, well-minded, sensitive, liberal member of the Muslim Brotherhood. I hope. Uh, but I, I'm not sure I want to bet uh, my nation's security on it. So we're in this weird situation, you know, aid to uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, which frankly is a totalitarian dictatorship, but it buys a lot of U.S. weapons. You know, the U.S. is in this odd position then that it feels as part of a package it has to give money to other countries in the, government, in the, reg in the region, therefore money to Israel is kind of forcing the U.S. to give money to other regimes and it's creating this potential for an arms race. I think this is a very important insight that raises questions about the efficacy of U.S. aid. I think the second question <clears throat> which the U.S. has to ask at this time is, is the aid good for America? I mean, the point is <laughs> the U.S. is giving the aid, and effectively what the U.S. is doing today is borrowing money to give money. And we have to ask, does that make sense? I mean, the U.S., in my view, is functionally bankrupt. I mean, if you just look at U.S. finances, it's extraordinary. Now, the, the amount of money going to Israel in certain ways is small in the scheme of things. I mean, $3 billion a year is kind of a rounding error here in Washington. I mean, it barely gets noticed here on Capitol Hill. I mean, over the lifetime of uh, the U.S.-Israeli relationship, I think the last estimate I saw was about $115 billion total aid. Now, the only other country that comes close at this stage is Afghanistan, which is a fairly recent uh, you know, aid recipient for the United States. <clears throat> but the, if you're never willing to say no to anything, it's very hard to say no to anyone else. So the challenge I think we face in the U.S. trying to how do you get control of federal finances, if you don't start asking questions on everything, every other claimant who comes in, of course, can say, we're special. I mean, people come in and say, I represent poor people, I represent this group, I represent that group. Unless one is willing to take everyone who comes in and say, let's look at this very seriously, can the U.S. afford this, when can you say no? And I would say we're looking at a situation now where we have a country that thankfully is prosperous and powerful and where there's evidence that the aid is actually harmful to its cause. That is certainly a time where the United States government should say, wait, does this make sense? You know, we need to have an assessment here then and ask questions as opposed to just kind of you know, sign off as is done you know, every year. These are not usual times. You know, we have a national debt of about $16 trillion. The last four years in a row, we've had deficits of over $1 trillion each. The Congressional Budget Office looks ahead the next decade. Any of the budget plans out there increase red ink. It just varies how much, $3 trillion, $5 trillion, $10 trillion. You take the plan and take your assessments of what Congress is going to do. A lot more red ink is coming down the line. Social Security and Medicare are over $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. Economist Lawrence Kotlikoff figures about $220 trillion total in terms of America's total as effective debt. And that's roughly 14, 15 times U.S. GDP. At a time like that, the U.S. has to step back and ask of every expenditure, does it make sense, can we afford it? Should we be borrowing money and mortgaging our future for this expenditure? That question needs to be asked. Finally, the U.S. has to recognize that it kind of aid year in and year out inevitably identifies it with policies that are not well liked elsewhere in the world. Now, I don't want to get in the swamp of arguing about Israeli policies, are they good or bad? The reality is if the U.S. gives money essentially without thought, that is every year in and out gives the cash, that suddenly has become a symbol of the U.S.-Israeli friendship. And that friendship runs very deep and frankly it's not based on aid or money. It's based on many other things. 
But aid has become kind of the symbol of that friendship. And since money is fungible, anyone in, you know, looking around the world who doesn't like Israeli policies can tell themselves America's funding it. Because if the US is providing aid for Israel, whether it's war in Gaza, whether it's occupation policies, any number of things, people will make the argument that it's America. America's behind it, America's subsidizing it. And there's an odd thing here, because what happens with the US sees this identification and feels under pressure, it then goes to Israel and tries to control Israeli decisions. Now, Israel has to make its own decisions on its national security. Israel, ultimately, it's a small country. It's surrounded. You know, these are not easy security decisions. Israel has to make those decisions. However, from the United States standpoint, if the US is going to be identified with whatever Israel does, we can look you know, forthcoming whatever happens with Iran. I can't predict. I have no idea. But if we're in a situation where the US, Washington, is effectively identified with Israel on anything that Israel does because of these policies, that's another cost. And it redounds on Israel because inevitably, American politicians will show up in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and start saying, this is what we want. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. You know, this sort of thing. Because, understandably, it affects the United States. That there's no distance there for Israel to be making its decisions on national security without feeling pressure from the United States because the U.S. inevitably will apply pressure because it's giving all this aid. So I think what we see here is a kind of two ways that this is a harmful limitation on the independence of both countries. It really, to my mind, brings it back to the issue of Israel in terms of freedom of action that's going to be inhibited. And that, of course, creates frustrations and anger within the relationship. Nobody likes to have foreign politicians show up in town telling you what to do. Even if you're fairly friendly in terms of your countries, it's still an irritant to have the other somebody else show up and tell you what to do, especially when your feeling is, is my security. It's far more important for me than you who are you to lecture me in terms of what we do to, to ensure the survival of our nation. So I, I think this is a very good, uh, you know, this briefing and the, what the work that the Sowers are doing is very useful to, to kind of point out how American and Israeli friendship is obvious and it's enduring. It's based on many things. But what we see is that foreign aid seems to become as one of the most important symbols of that friendship, and I think that's unfortunate. It's creating a political symbol of a friendship that's far deeper and matters far more in other things. And it's a, this is a good time to step back and say, does this aid policy make sense? especially from the standpoint of a United States that is functionally bankrupt. I mean, the US has to start making tough decisions. It will be easier to make those tough decisions if everyone within the process believes and sees that tough decisions are being applied to everyone, that trade-offs are being made for everyone. There are no favored clients. Nobody gets in with an exemption. But instead, we ask the question of everyone, is this a good policy? Does it make sense? If that's the standard, I think that uh, the policy that uh, you know, Rob outlined of kind of gradually getting out of kind of diminishing the aid. I think that is certainly one way to go in terms of moving us over the long term out of this relationship that I think has become problematic on the foreign aid side for both the United States and for Israel. Thank you. <laughs>